You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, we'll hear why one academic thinks the innovation crisis in the development of drugs is more marketing rhetoric than reality. But the real innovation crisis is how few of the new drugs, including uh, new molecules, are clinically better for patients against uh, real measures of clinical outcome. But before that, a paper online on bmj.com is looking at the association between psychological distress and mortality. Earlier this week, I talked to one of the authors of that paper, Tom Ross, who's Alzheimer's Scotland's Clinical Research Fellow at the University of Edinburgh. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Tom. Oh, you're welcome. Now, psychological distress is a pretty broad term. How did you define it for your analysis? Well, um, we were using the general health questionnaire, or the 12-item version of the general health questionnaire, to identify psychological distress at baseline. And so it was um, measuring um, symptoms such as concentration, losing sleep, um, feeling unhappy and depressed, losing confidence in yourself, thinking of yourself as a worthless person, these sort of things. So really, symptoms of anxiety and depression, while not actually capturing a formal diagnosis of um, um, an anxiety disorder or a depressive illness. Okay, so um, that's quite important. It's sort of subclinical psychological distress then. Um, to, to some extent. The, the, um, the general health questionnaire is used widely in, in population studies, and it does seem to be that at um, higher scores, um, often scoring four or more, so having four or more of these symptoms, does correlate pretty well with a, a formal diagnosis of an anxiety or, um, or depressive disorder. Um, the, the, the subclinical symptoms is for, for people who, who've only got one, two or three symptoms perhaps. Mm, okay. Now obviously you're looking at a population for this, you're, it's an analysis of 10 prospective cohort studies. So what yes. populations were they looking at? So we, we used um, 10 of the annual surveys from the Health Survey for England, which um, aims to be representative of um, household-dwelling individuals in, in England. Um, and then the prospective part is that the, these surveys were then linked with um, death certificate data over an average of eight years for us to identify who died and from what causes. Okay. And how good is the data um, that comes back? Uh, how comprehensive is it? Um, well, the, the original surveys are um, are pretty comprehensive. They they, um, they 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 try to be as representative as they can. Each year they do have slightly different focuses, which means that the um, the same variables aren't necessarily collected in every year, which led to um, some problems with with missing data. Mm. The um, data based on death certificates isn't, isn't perfect in that the um, death um, causes of death aren't always um, perfectly recorded. No, but um, post-mortem studies do suggest that broad categories such as cardiovascular disease, cancer, like we've used in this study, mm -hmm. are probably adequate for epidemiological research. Okay. Um, and it's a pooled analysis of, of 10 studies. So how many uh, patients are we talking about here? Um, it was um, 68,000 um, individuals. And because we were able to, um, while, while it is a pooling, because we had the, the individual participant data, we were able to um, calculate the association for uh, each individual study and then meta-analyze this overall data. So while it's not based on a, a systematic review, we did use meta-analytic techniques. 
Right, okay. So when you did your, your meta-analysis then, um, what did you find? Well, we, we found that across the full spectrum of um, distress, so even people with very, very low um, numbers of symptoms, there was an association between psychological distress and overall mortality. Um, and this, this is a very clear dose-response association from, from really the very lowest um, level of symptoms. Looking in more detail at broad causes of death, this was, this was the same for um, death from cardiovascular disease and from external causes. We also looked at cancer, which um, showed a similar association at higher levels of distress, but not in the same way for people who we've, we've described as subclinically symptomatic. Mm. Okay. And how does that fit in with the sort of um, literature around this uh, before you did your analysis? Well, the, the, um, the association between psychological distress and mortality has been receiving quite a lot of interest recently. Mm. Um, but the majority of studies, partly as a result of size, have really used a, a, a dichotomy, um, the presence or absence of psychological distress, or a few studies have, have looked at um, um, a small number of categories. But partly because of the size of the sample, we were able to look at this in much more detail, hence this novel finding that even people with um, very low levels of psychological distress are still at an increased risk of mortality. Absolutely. Now, there, there's obviously explanations about why people with a high level of psychological distress um, are at increased risk of mortality, and, and they're pretty well documented. And But this novel finding, um, and this is you know, picked up in the rapid responses, which you have replied to online. Um, but do you think there are possibly factors uh, involved in that lifestyle, you know, whatever it is, that, that you weren't able to account for? Um, it, it, it's very likely there are, there, there are some factors we weren't able to account for, but because the Health Service for England are are so are pretty comprehensive in, in what they measure, we were able to include a lot of the common um potential explanations into our models um, so we, we could adjust for age and sex and social class diabetes body mass index blood pressure activity smoking and and alcohol consumption so so the, the majority of the of the the, the, the usual suspects um, we were able to incorporate into our models which had some effect but the um, but the association we um, we identified wasn't wasn't eliminated by including these factors. So there there will be some other factor which is causing this association. And uh, uh, any sort of pointers as to what that that factor might be? There, there is a lot of research interest into inflammation and, and immune responses. And depression does cause inflammatory changes and and um, immune responses. So there does seem to be some interaction there. That this this is a plausible mechanism for some of the. Um, for some of this association that we've observed. There's obviously got quite a big implication across the whole population of the UK and, and anywhere else. And people might be concerned about this. I mean, what do you think this means for, for public health? Um, it, it, it certainly is of public health significance. But just just to, to give you an idea, the, the, the people that, who we described as subclinically symptomatic comprised approximately a quarter of the of the general population sample in our um, uh in our study, and so mm -hmm. so it, it is a large number of people who who have this this level of psychological distress. Um, so clearly, for, from their point of view, it's not necessarily good news that we've identified this increased risk. Yeah. Um, it, it's important, that, I think, to be clear that we're not we're not advocating um, the, the the pathologization of this level of psychological distress. I I, I wouldn't be 
advocating um, the use of antidepressants or anything like that. Certainly, the 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 evidence is that even in in mild mild um, episodes of depression, antidepressants don't have any effect. And so, extrapolating from that, it would be very unlikely that they would be of any use in in these milder le levels of distress. Um, really, the research base isn't there. So, further research is needed to identify whether interventions, perhaps certainly non-pharmacological but perhaps psychological interventions that could uh, reduce these levels of distress, whether that would have any effect on this increased risk we've identified. Okay. And if you were pressed for a bottom line from, say, a GP who's uh, being presented with patients who um, are worried about this, what would you say? I think I would be um, suggesting that, that the... the um, this GP reassure the patient as uh, as much as possible that actually there um, there are a lot of things that could be done to to um, improve health and to 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 maintain optimal health. Some of some of the, um, the the variables that we were able to incorporate into our models, I'd certainly encourage um, them to be um, optimizing to to um, to give a, a best outcome, and certainly minor symptoms of distress if they're if they're causing difficulties, I think should be. Um, um, perhaps managed in, in a very um, light-touch, non-pharmacological manner. Um, but at the moment, it's, it's, it's very difficult to come up with a concrete um, answer for, for something that can categorically reduce this, this risk that we've identified. Absolutely. And that article is available online on bmj.com. Now, what do we get for all the public money spent on pharmaceutical research? Four-fifths of the cost of the basic science research underpinning new drug development comes from public sources like the NIH or the UK's research councils. On top of that, pharma companies receive further support in the form of tax relief. Yet still, there's a reported innovation crisis, with companies saying that the rate of discovery is dropping and costs are increasing. An article on bmj.com is refuting that, and earlier, I talked to the author to find out more. I'm joined on the line now by Donald Light, who's a professor of comparative health systems at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. Now, Donald, you've written with Dole uh, Lexgen on the BMJ this week about the innovation crisis in drug development. You say it's not actually a crisis at all, but rather a marketing ploy. Yes, the widespread belief and many, many articles since about... 2000 about the innovation crisis that the major drug companies face um, is a myth um, based on FDA data. Um, the main measure of innovation usually is new molecules approved, and their data quite clearly shows that the decline uh, occurred after a, a very unusual peak in the mid-90s due to various reasons. The number of new molecules uh, approved has been steady um, after, ever since that decline that ended in about 2006. But the real innovation crisis is how few of the new drugs, including uh, new molecules, are clinically better for patients against uh, real measures of clinical outcome. So what's the motivation for talking about an innovation crisis if it's being pushed by, by various people in the drug industry? Oh, well, the, the industry constantly talks about breakthrough drugs, real innovation, 
we're on the brink of a revolution in in new drugs. The the rhetoric is always about um, the potential for innovation and also then the unsustainable costs and the crisis of innovation. And that's all to motivate sympathy for the industry and that the industry needs more help from Parliament and Congress and other legislatures. The industry depends very heavily on government subsidies. It's one of the most subsidized industries in the world, and it has gained from this rhetoric um, further subsidies, uh, direct or indirect. So, for example, it now has more um, government protections from normal free market competition than it had when it began, began this campaign, and that allows it to charge higher prices while prohibiting generics from competing. And this ploy is obviously working in terms of of subsidies and things. How is it um, affecting, you know, the science behind the sort of pharmacology? One thing that's been quite clearly documented uh, as being systematic, um, several articles in the BMJ, are the ways in which the, the marketing departments take the research findings and alter them when, when they are written up. And then those distortions, uh, overstating benefits and understating risks of harms, become the official medical knowledge, and they're really all that doctors and patients know. So something that concerns a lot of us uh, are the ways in which medical knowledge is being distorted. And I, I think that... Uh, Companies which have been getting a real black eye from all the all the huge fines of hundreds of millions and sometimes two or three billion dollars, like GSK and Pfizer, um, could re- restore trust by um, by setting up a a um, a program whereby researchers review the accuracy of um, proposed papers and marketing materials that are based on their research on a drug. So I would challenge Andrew Witte at GSK and Ian Reed at Pfizer to create a certification of accuracy program by researchers on marketing materials um, because uh, we have systematic evidence, some of which came out in the BMJ recently by Lisa Burrow and her team, um, that uh, there are systematic changes in the way in which research results are presented compared to what the companies submitted to the regulators. Another myth uh, that's kind of perpetuated as well as this uh, innovation crisis is the cost of developing a new drug, um, often quoted at around $1.3 billion. Now, you've deconstructed that figure in your piece. What do you you think the correct total is more like? Well, nobody knows what the correct total is because the industry uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't allow us to see the data or to review the records. Instead, they hire researchers, uh, sorry, economists, to develop econometric models that produce very high estimates, like the $1.3 billion estimate. Other people, other um, industry 
sponsored sources put it, $1.8 billion. But half of that total is an estimate of the profits the company would have made had they not done the research and put the money into an, a stock fund. And, and that estimate is actually much higher than the rise in the stocks. So, but that's not really R&D. It's just profits foregone. And then uh, a second inflator is that that research was done on the most costly one-fifth of new drugs, even according to the authors, um, but they attribute it to the average new drug. So that inflates by 3.44 times what, the, what their own figures show. I've published with, with a health economist an analysis, a de, sort of a deconstruction of the inflated number. That and other articles are available at www.pharmamyths.net. But um, in our article, we take a much simpler measure of the so-called unsustainable R&D costs, which is another part of the innovation crisis, unsustainable R&D, we need more help. Um, policy rhetoric, and that is to compare the increase in um, investment in R&D with the increase in uh, revenues generated, and um, and basically the the increase in revenues generated is six times greater than the increase in R&D. So that doesn't look unsustainable to us. It looks like it's actually very profitable. Mm. Um, but you say that all of this kind of rhetoric that's that's building up about um, drug development uh, and the way in which marketing and marketeers perhaps distort evidence isn't some sort of nefarious plan to deny kind of new drugs to the world. Um, it's rather a sort of pragmatic response by companies to the current sort of regulatory setup. Well, it's it's not nefarious. It's it's uh, simply rational economic behavior. So um, the, the regulations um, uh, approve drugs using a very loose and low criteria, although, of course, another part of the rhetoric is how very high the criteria are. So the regulations do not require companies and actually prohibit the regulators from approving drugs on the basis of there being clinically better for patients than existing drugs. Um, that seems to us to be intuitively wrong. Uh, and then patents are much more widely made available to protect uh, companies from normal free market competition. So it's, uh, the, the incentives clearly reward companies for l taking less risk and developing more quickly minor variations and profiting from those, rather than trying to use basic research to find important new drugs. Mm. So if the whole system um, is skewed to, away from innovation and towards these sort of tiny incremental changes, how should we tackle this? Um, do you have an idea about what should change? Well, one of the ways is in the companion article by... Um, uh, Nasi uh, Silas et al. called Raising the Bar for Market Author Authorization of New Drugs. Um, and that is uh, to, to simply require that new drugs um, 
prove that they are clinically better, not against certain substitute endpoints, but clinically superior to existing drugs. And, um, and one needs, clinicians need perhaps three or maybe four similar drugs within a given clinical therapeutic class um, because patients vary and any given drug usually is not health beneficial to about half of the patients in who have a given problem, so you need alternatives. But beyond three or four similar drugs within a given class, um, there's very little medical gain by having a fifth, sixth, seventh, or eighth. So um, we simply need to ask what we want. If we want clinically superior drugs, then we need to require that of the companies. And I think they will respond. I don't think, I, I think they are rational economic actors. And if society uh, asks them for better drugs, they will focus on finding them. And if we don't, which is what we haven't done for the last uh, 50 years, then they usually won't. Donald Light, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Sure. You're welcome. And again, that article is now available online. Links from the podcast page. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back looking at food marketing. Is it a public health crisis? We'll be talking to Marion Nessel, the outspoken academic from New York, who's taking the junk food giants head on. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.